This is Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Tuesdays and Thursdays from 10 a.m. You're on Rally Check Radio. It's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde, and we're joined by Corey Gray. Now, Corey, you're an Australian. I'm an Australian and a Maltese citizen, actually, for my oh, sins. From, so, from Malta. That's right. I have the, the curious, um, uh, what would I say, situation of being a member of one of the largest and most sparsely populated countries on earth and one of the smallest and most densely populated countries on earth, which is an, an interesting segue into the first principles of smart cities because um, each place is still trying to do the same things that we've always tried to do for citizens, but obviously have very different levers to pull and buttons to press. Yeah. So you are the CEO, the top dog of what is called the Smart Cities Commission. Smart Cities Council, yeah. Council. Now, yes. I'll tell you exactly where I am. Mm-hmm. I'm your perfect target market for convincing because two things. I know nothing about smart cities or smart or the commission. Mm-hmm. Nothing. But yep. I'm highly skeptical. Yep. Just because of how it sounds. So what I want would like you to do is these things. Tell me what the council is. Tell me yep. how you got into it. And tell yep. me what a smart city is compared to a dumb one. And mm-hmm. go. Yeah, so that's um, pretty simple starting at the beginning. Smart City Council, we're founded and based in Washington, D.C. in the U.S. Um, Founded there in 2012. I live in Australia but travel a lot. I'll be back to America on Sunday and then across to Europe uh, the following week and then into Asia again, um, where it would appear to be the largest organisation of our type in the world with about 400,000 people around the world directly and indirectly involved in what we do. And our mission's a simple one, which segues into your, to your second question. Um, we want to make a safer, more beautiful, enabled, resilient, sustainable and equitable world for everyone. It's really simple. Um, I struggle with the the jargonism and stigmatisation of smart city. Um, There are a lot of people who have tried to make it all about technology and data and realistically what we want as citizens and why I'm passionate about this and put all my time into, well, not all of it, but a significant amount into Smart Cities Council. You know, I have seven kids, the smallest one that's heading towards me now and about to make a whole bunch of bunch of noise if she doesn't fall down the stairs first is that i want a better world for everyone and i want the relationships between people and the the only planet we have to live on to be strong and viable and sustainable it's that simple so it's it's not anyone is there anyone out there that doesn't want that that's my point so if people don't believe in the smart city movement as as i say if if you can find me people i was talking to heads of local government today if you can find me people who don't want a safer community, who don't want a more beautiful community, who don't want a more enabled, more cost-effective, sustainable, resilient and inclusive community, um, then we have a bigger problem <laughs> yeah, than we face but you, you've, at the moment, you've right? you sold me the sizzle yeah. 
I want to understand what the sausage is. So first up, first up, what is the Smart Cities Council? Mm -hmm. Who funds it? And what's its purpose? Oh, well, the, the purpose of Smart City Council is, as I've said in our mission statement uh, just a minute ago, we want to make that safer, more, more equitable, enabled, resilient, beautiful and um, sustainable world. That's really clear. Uh, we're a social impact organisation. We have operations, as I mentioned, in based in Washington. We have people in Texas. We have people in New York, um, around Australia and New Zealand. We have people in ASEAN, the subcontinent. We've just opened in Bangladesh. We're in Poland, Turkey. We've just opened in Ukraine and we're working with 580 mayors, the Mayors Club Ukraine and the Reconstruct Ukraine, Rebuild Ukraine organisation there to build a framework for post-war recovery. Um, we're in the UK. We're about to open in Switzerland, Mexico. So we have a global presence. Uh, so you're a big organisation. We have a big reach and a big influence. We try to operate lean because we are a social impact organisation and, and you sort of you ask the question about how we fund ourselves. We're ostensibly an organisation that relies on donations, government grants, memberships. Uh, we operate events. We have online education tools and planning and software tools and canvases that people use. So we operate as lean as we can. Um, we partner a lot. We work with a lot of universities that help What's us out. What's your annual budget, say? Our annual budget in terms of what? Money. Total money. What's your total expenditure in a year? Uh, it'd be less than $10 million. Okay. US. So we, as I say, we work we work in kind with universities that provide us with premises. So we're not hiring hotels for a hundred grand. Okay. We're about to have a have an event in um Scottsdale, Arizona, and they are providing all the facilities and events, and and then people. So there's will cover. a lot of a lot of donations in kind. Absolutely, that's what keeps us going. Like we have the beneficence of government and and the private sector to a point, but we're not a private sector advocacy advocacy group by any means. We are genuinely citizen and place focused. Have um, you got, have you got particular foundations or particularly donors? or particular governments that are more significant or that are, um, give a lot, or is it a whole lot of small bits? Uh, it's it's pretty well spread, and truthfully, I'd, I'd prefer to keep it that way because that democratises the organisation. I mean, I've only been running this for context for nine months, mm-hmm. although I've been around the organisation longer. My background has been... Over 30 years in private sector where I've founded different technology and solutions companies um, and I sit on the board still of four or five and a few different charities and sports organisations. So my my time is is spent uh, evenly across sectors um, and, you know, there's a lot of other organisations where I get regularly asked, you know, to join industry groups and the first question is, that you asked me is what's your mission and what's your purpose? And the sex qu- second question is where's the value, right? And then who are you working with? How do I know it's an ethical organisation? How do I know you're acting in good faith and for good purpose? So when I came into this role, uh, which is a full-time role but an honorary role that I'm I'm pleased to occupy, um, they're the questions I wanted to know. You know, for, for me where I'm at in my life and career, it's about 
making a difference for, as I said, society in place that's sustainable and and positive. So being forward-looking, you want an organisation that is democratised, not focused on the thoughts of a few people, not messianic, if you will, <laughs> like some organisations can be where people arrive at, you know, to the Oracle of Delphi to hear the, mm. the one and only true vision of the world, right? So we want to be a living, vibrant global organisation that acts in the collective interests of all. Okay, and you you used a phrase to describe the council, and I I wasn't one I was familiar with. I'm sorry. You said it's was mm. it a social impact organisation? Correct. So now, that that yep. so what you're saying there, I guess, it's not for profit. So, what does that mean? Social impact. So, are you familiar with the American term B corporation? Okay, it effectively means that the corporate structure is the same as you might have for a for-profit, let's say, or a not-for-entity, but you have a charter or a mandate that everything you do and if you happen to make money would go back into reinvest into the key targets and objectives that we have, whether they're through projects, whether they're through our global charity partners or what have you. So... We spent a lot of time coming up with that structure when the organisation came across to us. So so for background, Smart Cities Council during COVID, you can imagine being an events and a, a membership organisation, a lot of discretionary spending and all of that stopped. Um, so one of my companies and my myself personally made sure that Smart Cities um, could make it through that period and it's been restructured now to have an operating model, on, took a lot of advice from the, the CEO of a charity out of New York that, that I chair called EB Research Partnership, and we said, look, anything like this, you want to be accountable, not how much to how much money you raise every year. Lots of charities raise a lot of money and then waste it on high salaries and don't get any impact, right? Getting a cure to EB in, in the case of that charity or cancer or motor neuron disease isn't solely about how much money you raise. It's about what you do with that money and then it's about how many people benefit and to what extent from that money. So we set up a charter that holds ourselves to account by impact. How many homeless people find homes? How many kids get into schools? How much plastic gets out of the ocean? How much carbon comes out of the atmosphere? Got it. I see. I I, I apologise for not knowing that. No, no, that's and- fine. I mean, it's, it's a fairly new and innovative sort of way of thinking but Mm. you know lots of charities benchmark themselves to how much money they raise and then go Mm. and you know only 60 cents in the dollar gets through to people who need the money and we we have a baseline where effectively i personally guarantee the operating cost every year of the organization so other people's money goes straight through to doing things that matter wow so you're really committed and you said your position was an honorary one yeah i don't get paid to do my job well, you're the definition of a true believer in that sense. You're a volunteer. Absolutely. I think it's the single most significant way that in the time I still have on this planet that I can make a meaningful difference to people and the planet we live on. Well, that's very admirable. Now, I'm a bit gobsmacked by that. Good on you. Now, tell me this. Explain to me. You'll be familiar with Auckland. Yes. I was there that's, not long ago. That's our big city. Yes. What would you you do 
to make Auckland a smart city? Huh. So Auckland's an interesting one. And just just for background, I had the, the, the curious historical anomaly of having lived in Christchurch for a year in 1976 when my dad was a schoolmaster at a school over here and got taken over to teach rugby players at Christ College how to kick <laughs> because he was an Australian rules footballer. And I, I met Richard Hadley, which still might be the, the the highlight of my life. And I also lived in a city that had exactly the same plan as Adelaide, where I live in Australia, because yes. Colonel William Light designed them both. I'm so happy to. Confusing. I'm happy if you'd prefer to make Christchurch smart. What that would involve? <laughs> no, no, no. It's right because the the question doesn't change with the city, right? Um, people, Aul- Auckland is an interesting one in the context of New Zealand, perhaps you think about Dublin in the context of Ireland, which I spent a lot of time in Dublin or maybe Copenhagen. They're countries that are fairly spread, four, four and a half million people roughly, or more than a quarter of them live in one place, right? Um, yep. One main city, Dublin, Copenhagen or, or Auckland. So typically the challenges for a city like Auckland are, and and for context, my behave, my background is more in behavioural science and, and group dynamics, although I'm a technologist as well, around blending cultures. And Auckland is, you know, in, in many ways a cultural uh, melting pot. Dublin, not so much, although the Polish are arriving in Eastern Europeans much more significantly. So there are issues of, of cultural amelioration. There are the, the typical issues of pressure on transport. I saw that the new bridge in Auckland has just been um in principle approved across uh, the bay there which is great i know that there's like rail planned i know there's a north south rail link so transportation is is critical um and then obviously people affordability is the other thing keeping big like you know more concentrated cities affordable for people uh is fundamental because if if no one can afford them then no one's going to live in them and no one's going to get any benefit right Connectivity to regional communities to me is really, really important when you have a high uh, population concentration in a country like New Zealand. How easily can people come and go? I was talking with the municipality of Istanbul this morning where they have a very different challenge. They have 18 million people, um, spiralling cost of living, um, critical limits on data, water, waste management, transport. And the discussion there is how to get people into a position where they can go back and live where they came from. Mm. The solution to Istanbul isn't how do we get it to 30 million people, it's how do we get it back to 10. Because mm. if you spend a dollar in a regional community compared with a city that's at its limit, you'll probably get three times as much value. People we know perform better socially and in terms of well-being indices if they live near to their families, their friends, um, their place, particularly in the case of Indigenous people. So the solution isn't just how do I scale, build faster internet and 5G and all of that stuff. It's a it's a very complex socioeconomic, environmental, um, human behavioural uh, discussion to have. So that's a circumlocutus way to saying um, Auckland still needs to be able to scale, but it needs to be able to connect people to regional communities so it's viable to do jobs remotely for people to live where they've come from, to manage people's cultural and societal and familial backgrounds and also to take pressure off the environment and to manage things in a cost-effective way. I think 
you know, you've seen that the spent the expenditure about to be undertaken in New Zealand, and it's probably front of mind at the moment with an election coming up, is at an historic high, right? On on mm-hmm. major infrastructure, um, it's not dissimilar anywhere else. But putting a focus on well-being and working backwards is is the critical approach, as far as I'm concerned, whether you're Istanbul or Auckland uh, or Christchurch. You you just apply those same principles in a different way with a slightly different set of tools. So back to my question, uh, lofty goals, Mm -hmm. how do you achieve that for Auckland? What do you do for Auckland? How does Auckland look different? How does it be different? To achieve those goals, um, it is a it is a slightly complex. Well, there there are there's more than one competing contributing factor to that. So, uh, as an example, what we're doing at the moment is working with New Zealand and Queensland governments on a infrastructure transport uh, summit that includes City of Auckland, Auckland Airport. We're hosting an event on the first of August. Um, if you want to come along in Auckland. That'll advance um, how and where that money's spent. What are what are we doing? We're working on how organisations, particularly government, need to change their structure to be more effective in a new technology world. Um, there's not a big tech agenda going on out in, out in this part of the world. I know that there's been a lot of. Um, uh, skepticism, let us say, healthy skepticism around the role of uh, hyperscalers, you know, the Googles and the AWSs and the Microsofts and so on, in this area about the integrity of people's data and what it's being used for and how it's being used. Um, but building capability and capacity and collaboration is is really the secret to success. Like, as we said, Auckland does have issues of being globally remote, has issues of how people get in and out of it, has issues of general congestion. You know, there's enablement at the airport that's starting and will be ongoing and, as I said, through light rail and other rail and road infrastructure. Um, But there's a whole role in terms of different um, economic uh, models to make cities Auckland being just the example we're talking about now, more viable and and cost-effective and livable. You see, to me, um, with Auckland, the planners since the 1960s, this is me speaking and I'll be blunt, Mm. the planners have destroyed it because... They had a plan in the early 60s to build a proper motorway system. Mm -hmm. They decided they didn't want to have a motorway system. They decided that they would build, they had some phrase for it, I can't forget. It it wasn't smart city, but it was something like that. And they put a ring around it, Mm -hmm. wouldn't allow development. They said, we're going to have light rail and trains and, intensify Mm -hmm. they drove up land prices so unless you're born into a family that owns a house in auckland Mm. you're going to be renting for the rest of your life if you live there you're the home ownership now is totally unavailable to an aucklander if you can afford to rent by the way yes and um the land outside that circle 
is as cheap as chips. Mm -hmm. Then to do anything in Auckland, the planning regulations drain your blood and treasure. <laughs> yeah. Because you've got so many bloody hoops to mm -hmm. climb through. And then successive governments come along with infrastructure plans that is, you know, the latest bright and shiny thing for politicians to get elected on, fail to deliver them, and Auckland crumbles under the weight of people, traffic. And to me, looking at it, we'd be better to back government out of it and allow property rights and human ingenuity and the human spirit to have a go. And so I don't jump on board concepts and working with government because I've seen what that's done to Auckland with the best and loftiest of goals. I've also become highly sceptical of government working in partnership with the private sector because it seems to me that's sort of like the Googles and the Amazons and whoever getting a leg up and squeezing out the next round of entrepreneurs. Do you see my point? Yeah, yeah, and I'm in, in, in the majority I would agree with you. So to speak to a couple of things, the challenges that our organisation at least and organisations like ours are trying to deal with is really seven getting on to eight generations since the Industrial Revolution with a huge amount of momentum in a certain direction that the majority of people accept um, the very few, <laughs> and I had the uh, the interesting opportunity to meet Ted Cruz at the White House last month, who's one of these very uh, vociferous um, uh, climate-denying uh, type red Americans. Um, just, even, uh, I should he, tell you, he's just like me. But anyway, carry on. <laughs> <laughs> Have you got snakeskin boots? No, but I wish I had a pair. Yeah, yeah. So even if for some reason people choose not to believe about carbon in the atmosphere, we can see a world that has far more people on it. We can see a world that has far more poverty in it. You've just described it. Far less equity in it. Uh, far more shit in the ocean. Far more shit in the atmosphere, right? That's, that's undeniable even by the most... Um, forthright climate change tonight, right? I'm interested in this planet overall, and I think like most politics where both parties 99% agree and spend 99% um, of their time arguing over the 1%, yeah. what we want to do is start with the common 99% and move forward on that, right? Not, not nuanced, longitudinal uh, climate studies where someone's arguing over what degree or percentage of, of overall atmospheric temperature increase we've seen or how you model the rise in sea levels right we want kids in schools we want we don't want our streets full of rubbish we don't want people homeless we don't want living to be unaffordable um you want all these good things cory i'm struggling yes. to understand how you deliver them we work with a lot of different organizations that have a high level of capability um 
the reason that we're focused down on government, right, and people say this all the time, well, government's impossible to change. We, as citizens, we don't want a government that takes all of our, and I can tell you now because I go to a lot of countries where this happens. I'll be in Sri Lanka in two weeks where it's it's a tragedy. We don't want our governments moving fast and loose with our money as taxpayers. To a, to a fault, governments tend to move slower in stable countries like ours, but I promise you it's a whole lot better than the alternative, right? What's going on in Sri Lanka is, is an absolute tragedy. What's going on with the re-election of Erdogan in Turkey, and I don't want no, to get I too get all political. That. I get all that. But, but we need to work with government. government yeah, we're not going so to you're end working, up with a situation with where the, government you're, disappears. Yeah, you're working with the New Zealand government and the Auckland Council and other councils here. To what end? To make the rubbish get picked up and make housing affordable. And my question to you is lovely and good on you, but I'm struggling to understand what's different with saying we're going to have smart cities compared to what we've got. Now, all I've got is smart cities. Well, it's got to be good because who wants to live in a dumb city? And we all agree we want a nice, clean environment and to be able to afford things and our kids mm-hmm. in school and the streets clean. How do you deli- – how, how, what is it that delivers so, that? Yeah, so our, our function is to deliver – not just white papers and blogs, but to deliver tangible tools, playbooks, new contractual models, de-risked, data-driven, sometimes technology-enabled solutions that can do things better and more efficiently than we've been able to do them in the past. Okay. So it's a technological solutions and the use of modern data analysis and technology making up tools that can be used by, I'm guessing, central and local government and, yep. and you know, providers of services yep. to deliver a better result. And what I'm getting at this a bit, I think, Corey, and what mm. you're seeing is the opportunities have moved very fast with technology yes. and data that councils and governments and, and businesses are slow to work together on to the benefit of the citizenry. So, yeah, we have a unique set of tools now. Like, you know, to the, when when cars came in in the 1890s in the US and around the world, you know, the biggest anti-car people were the people who used to shovel horseshit in New York who thought they were going to lose a job, right? Yeah. And then everyone said, oh, I'm not going to sit on a sustained explosion. It's not safe. And then after about five years, people worked out that more people get killed getting bucked off horses than they do in cars, right? All we're doing, like this call we're having now, right? 20 years ago, we wouldn't have had a call like this. All that we're doing is saying, how can we responsibly and ethically use data and technology to deliver those outcomes? So our our role is to facilitate the use of that that, um, technology and data to make things better for people. And the places where they live. Now, now I get it. Sorry, I get it now. So it's this idea that we have unimagined abilities to connect the world, to connect each other, to take advantage of data, all you know, at a billionth of a second, Mm -hmm. 
And how can we best use that to good effect? Absolutely. And 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 I'd labour the point in a responsible and ethical way. I think people have started to be talking about chat GPT and artificial intelligence, for example. Um, whenever you get quantum leaps in technology, and I use th- three examples, that you need to form an ethical framework about it, which is something we're very committed to. So when Oppenheimer first set a bomb off in the desert, um, in the US, a nuclear bomb. After that, it took, let me get this right, 24 years before the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty was formed, right? When people realise this is just so big that it can change the planet in a very horrible way that was never anticipated. When we mapped the human genome, we had to do the same. As soon as you could start cloning yourself and your children, right, we needed to form an ethical framework. And now with the powers of artificial intelligence, we're facing a similar ethical conundrum that's being addressed by the world at the moment and we, we're involved in that discussion and we're involved in the discussion about what good can be done just mm. as much as what bad might it be might might happen as well so and sharing that information is important and the interesting thing is that this is happening right now anyway but without the conversation yeah and it's something you know I I like to think we work in a pyramid, not like a not not like a Maslow's hierarchy pyramid, but at the top you've got governments that traditionally, if you think about things like cyber stalking and dark web that came out when you know the internet proliferated, right? There was no legislation to stop people stalking online and um, all sorts of horrible pornography and other information exchange, right? So governments tra- traditionally la- lag technology in terms of policy and legislation and then public awareness, right? The other thing that governments tend to do is act completely independent of other governments. So if you look at regulations, you know, in New Zealand, you drive on the left like we do here. In Europe, we drive on the right. One computer has one sort of port to it. One's got a different sort of port. What we're trying to do as an organisation acting globally is be an aggregation of knowledge and, and of collective best practice that we can then share and enable people to make better decisions sooner on a collective uh, and democratised basis that can, again, at a policy level this time, not at a technology and widget level, provide better outcomes to citizens. And that can be around legislative frameworks for ethical artificial intelligence, for example. Mm. Um, And you're a clearinghouse, I'm guessing, for best practice around the world. That's what we are told we are and aspire to be more of and better at, yes. Mm. So what's the best or an example of your favourite or best technological tool that you're offering up to Auckland or Christchurch or Istanbul? What What's the sort of tool and... Uh, toolbox that you would have that you think this is cool this will make a difference what would be an ex- a, an example there, there's there's a couple of different lines of inquiry on that and i guess for complete clarity we 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 don't offer up tools or solutions we we create a forum where people like auckland can offer up their problems or opportunities and other people can help find those okay. solutions right so, yeah um 
it's strange. There's, there's a few different levels. As I say, if at, a, at a technological level, there's really basic stuff like intelligent street lighting that will make for a safer environment, save energy, reduce maintenance costs. That's really an easy one to get over the line. If you go to a rate payer and say, we want to make an investment that's going to reduce your rates, they'll say that's a good idea and keep you safer, right? That's a really easy traditional business case. So offer. what would intelligent lighting look like, just to give us a feel? Uh, intelligent lighting is simply controllable lighting that you can dim up and down that comes on only when it's a certain threshold of dark and goes off uh, when it's a certain um, level of brightness um, where you can change even the colour of it if there's an emergency. So you can go from a warmer type light to a, a brighter white light if there's been a car accident on a highway, for example where lights will dim down if the highway is not being used to save energy, um, where they'll tell you how many hours that a fixture is operated or if it's under warranty so you can reduce that sort of embedded um, exposure cost. That's okay. intelligent lighting. Intelligent waste management, you know, where you can monitor bins, help people sort recyclables from general waste more accurately. 60% of waste still gets put in the wrong bin. You can then compress rubbish in bins so you can get 10 times as much in a bin. You can then have predictive service cycles for public waste that reduce overflow and reduce traffic in the street. These are, you know, positive and tangible changes that you can that you can use. You can then, with surveillance cameras, not just look for baddies doing bad things, but you can monitor pedestrians, bikes, cars, trucks, buses, and get a better understanding and give data to planners, to your point earlier about what's really happening in a city in real time rather than what they think might be happening based on aged and and flawed data that's been gathered by individuals with pens and paper, right? Mm. How are people so, really using our cities? Are they if we've just spent a million dollars putting a new playground in, are people using it? Um where are those people coming from? Are they just local people? Are they coming across town? How long do they stay? How regularly do, do, do they come back? So you can start to plan with a lot better accuracy and make more informed investment decisions over time with that sort of information. Just hold it there, Corey. And in a funny way, that's happening now with, you know, smartphones and whatnot. But we as people and as citizens, even though it's happened, happening, and is going to continue to happen, we're also scared of it aren't we because like i think i'm off to the i'm off to the playground with my kids and i sort of have that um sort of sky fi movie you know there's a camera <laughs> watching me play with my kids um saying is this guy safe or or i think he's overdone it he's going to have a heart attack or where's he come from because we need this for planning purposes there's a level of big brother watching me and intrusion on my privacy of playing with my kids at the playground that we don't feel comfortable with, isn't there? Well, that's why I talked earlier about the ethical use of technology. In in Europe, the, the general data protection regulations, the GDPR, mean that any camera needs to redact the faces of everybody it's filming, right? You're not allowed to record people's faces. I don't know how familiar you are with the GDPR, but it's probably the most rigorous data protection and privacy standard in the world at the moment. What needs to happen is at the bottom of this pyramid I spoke about before, that there is more general awareness. Like 
one thing that makes me laugh is people who go on social media all the time and spread um, um, conspiracy theories about social media. If you believe them, don't be on social media. Mm. Get rid of your phone and stop using it, right? No, I, I so don't people, care. People either believe that the value is greater than the risk or the inconvenience mm. or they don't. But what we do want to have as citizens is confidence in our laws and, and regulations that they're not only written well but enforced properly that do protect privacy as we collectively believe it to be fit. Because in a funny way, you can monitor. I'm being monitored on my phone everywhere I go. I don't know who accesses to that particular data, but, you know, it's possible, right? Correct. Um, um, and I don't know what sort of frameworks governing that, but it's an interesting observation nonetheless that if there's a camera looking at me, I think, oh, I'm not, you know, if I was down at the beach and there's a camera, a uh, playground, there's a camera, it's the image that it conjures up of a movie. Do you know what I mean? I'm not I'm not trying to dismiss your work. I'm trying to raise a concern that people have. And we feel as though almost we it's going to happen. We can't stop it. This technology is propounding along, but it's not how we grew up. And I know yeah. you're saying it's like, well, cars came along and replaced horses. Mm. But, um, it, you know, this is part of the challenge of our future, isn't it? It always has been. Like, I, I constantly say to people, since we worked out how to grow maize in the Tigris-Euphrates Delta in Mesopotamia and set up the first buildings, proper buildings, and started living in societies, we've just wanted to do what we still wanted to today, which is go back to making safe, beautiful, sustainable, resilient and equitable communities, right? Mm. So our question needs to be not what tech are we buying, but what problem are we trying to solve for and can we solve for it safely? The mm. very first word in everything we do is safely and that includes the safety of people's privacy and their data, mm. right? It includes all aspects of safety, not just their physical person, their property, but all aspects of their safety. So there needs to be a fundamental basis for any new solution that's adopted, whether it's cars from horses or, or computers or internet banking, you know, you, you would remember there was a huge level of anxiety over internet banking when it came in, right? Huge level. Oh, I remember a huge level of anxiety about um, cash machines and credit cards. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So as society, we just need to form a collective view about what safe is in all of its different manifestations, whether it's privacy, data protection, um, autonomous vehicles crashing or not crashing, we form a view and then I would hope act collectively uh, in the best interest of our communities, acknowledging all of the inconveniences. I think was it Churchill who said that democracy is the worst form of government apart from all the others. Mm -hmm. But there's inherent impediments in it and checks and balances that slow it down and make it in, 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 inherently imperfect, right? Mm. But it's the best outcome that we have or the best process we have at the moment. Um, what are some of the more, you said they were the basic things, you know, the yep. lighting, the rubbish, the planning with the playgrounds, mm -hmm. and I can follow that. Yeah. What are the more sophisticated things that you're looking at? Um. Some of the things you mentioned, I mean, my my personal interest in societies, and, and again, I go back to saying that the sooner people stop using the term smart cities and just focus back on cities and citizens, the better in my view, mm -hmm. because there's stigma around it. But understanding well-being, 
um, there's there's a, a real view of what a 15-minute city is and then there's a conspiracy view, right? A 15-minute city should be one where you can access all critical services by foot or by bike in 15 minutes. Hospitals, schools, shops, doctors, whatever it is, you know, sports facilities, whatever you need. Then there's the alternate view, which is governments are using 5G and tracking you through COVID vaccines to control people's movements, right, which is that very Orwellian or Hunger Games in 21st century terminology view of the world. Um, I'm interested in the way we can use data and analytics now to understand well-being. Are people moving more efficiently? Um, are people visiting public art or community events or being more active? Um, or these are the things, using their cars less and walking more. These are the things that are interesting to me. And in general, you can also analyse things like public sentiment through social media to determine over time the general level of change in people's positivity about the places where they're living. Um, you can gamify sustainability. Um, what does that mean? Uh, before I was in this role, I was working in advisory around smart cities and in Western Sydney, there's an area where they're building nine apartment towers and people can now, will be able to compete between apartment towers for how much they reduce their waste output, their water consumption, their power consumption and benefit in terms of reduced body corporate fees and potentially rates, right? So there's mm -hmm. ways that you can use data, I think, in really, really uh, positive ways. But again, it needs to have an ethical framework that that data is secured and used appropriately. The, the huge opportunity for data is when you aggregate it and you can analyse it collectively. And there's a huge risk of centralising data is that you have a single point of failure. And we need to be incredibly mindful of that. The interesting thing, Corey, is, isn't it, is that whether I like it or not, and whether our listeners like it or not, this data is out there now, and it's being used now by all sorts, right? You can buy the data. Of yeah, the although there's a, there's a lot better checks and balances on that, and at least now you need to give consent for your data to be sold. But yeah. I think a lot of people don't read the terms and conditions of things that no. they check the box on because they want to share photos of their dogs and cats on Instagram, yeah. right? Yeah. If you go to someone's Instagram profile, you know what sort of restaurants they eat at, you know what sort of um, people they hang around with, you know where they travel and don't travel, you know what sort of money they must have, what cars they drive, where they – you know so much about somebody who voluntarily puts that online, right? Yes. Um. It's terrifying the stuff that I see people put online. It's yes. to me, it's some of it's just utterly crazy, right? Yes. Um, you know what shops they like. You know what sports teams they follow. You know where they work. You know who their colleagues are. Um, and we particularly do it to kids. Well, kids, kids, kids do, kids do well at well at school, and suddenly they're they're on Facebook and forever searchable. Yeah, yeah that's right, and there's. As you know, there's information been out there nearly 20 years now on people. Mm. But then people look at it and say with Facebook, even when there was a big turn against Meta after the um, Cambridge Analytics scenario, people look at it and say, oh, I've got 15 years of all my wedding anniversaries and children's birthdays and school graduations and all my photos and posts. I don't think I'm going to shut that down, right? No. I'm going to delete that data. So these are the decisions people make. You know, the most dangerous thing you can do as a human being is drive a car on a road. That is the single most likely way to kill yourself, right, or be in one. 
And yet every day we have a convention where we agree to do it. We take out third-party insurance and we go out and drive a car. Yeah. And that's the decision people have got to make with data and privacy. Where's the benefit and where's the risk? And and we're all making that decision to varying degrees. Yep. Because even if I'm living in the woods, chances are, you know, I'll be logging on. Yeah, that's right. And what you're saying is we can gamify, uh, we can plan better, we can check on people's well-being using this data mm-hmm. and therefore make better decisions. And let people ultimately make more informed decisions for themselves, yeah. So if you think about something I'm passionate about, which is aged care, right? Okay, let's uh, do I've worked that. a lot in fire safety and aged care. So at the moment, the elephant in the room in the aged care industry is the average life expectancy of somebody in, in Australia, at least, who is admitted to a full care facility is 18 months, right? It's a scandal. The economic model is designed to turn people over quicker, just like a restaurant wants three table sittings instead of two, right? Yep. There's really yep. bad things about that. So if we can keep an aging population at home longer, so let's assume you're retired, you're being, let's be theoretical, right? And you've retired with $2 million and you're 70 years old, right? Yeah. If you could spend a million of that and stay in your house till you're 90 instead of going to an aged care facility for 18 months and die, where you can have the water in your shower monitored to be the right temperature, the air conditioning monitored, your children and people who care about you can know if that you've been up and had breakfast and, you know, gone out on your on your lunch with your friends that you were planning to do, that the water hasn't been running for three days, that you're not lying down with a broken hip. A good friend of mine, his dad died during COVID. He had a, a mild stroke but collapsed and he was at home alone, right, in Sydney and and lay there four days unable to move till he died, right? Jeepers. Like it's about one of the most horrific ways you could think of dying apart from being burned to death or oh, eaten and by to have that happen dogs. to have that happen to your own father. That would be dreadful. So, so if we can use a little bit of data that's not filming you in the shower, it's not yeah. filming you lying in bed, but it knows that you're getting up and moving around and, and you, you, your caregivers and your power of attorney or whatever it is knows that you've had a shower and had lunch and been for a walk and come home and turned on the lights and turned off the lights and watched TV and you're living your life and you can stay at home instead of being institutionalised, I think that's a win, right? It's a win. So and I'm getting I'm getting this clearer now, Corey, because what you're saying in that example, like I love a smart home, you know, mm. I'm I'm the world's worst because I've got Googles and Alexas and I love yeah. coming in and telling things to start and keeping an eye on the kids. And I know where my kids are because I track them. And I don't regard that as surveillance. I regard that as being a good parent using Mm. technology to keep my children safe and if anything happened to them, they could contact me and I would know. Yes. And you're saying that you take the aged care one, we could be doing that for our aged mums and dads when we're in another city or across town rather than saying, oh, God, something could happen to them, rather than shuffle them into the old rest home. We could keep them at home because we can keep an eye on them and they can be in contact with us 24-7, essentially. 
And that yeah, be, that's not something we should be afraid of. That's an opportunity that we have. We just need to make a moral framework that we're happy about for all participants, and then off we go. Yeah. Whether it's children, whether it's our parents, you know, if suddenly I was talking with someone earlier today who found out just before she died that his mother had been sold four prepaid funeral plans, right, because she had dementia. So if you can, you know, in, a, in an agreed way, even see there goes another 10 grand, there goes another 10 grand, there goes another 10 grand, you sort of check in and just say, you're right, mum, you know. <laughs> What's going on? Jeepers, jeepers, creepers. Um, and that doesn't involve government is in that instance only setting up the framework for that to happen. It's not involved in the monitoring, right? Yeah, correct. And then people use it how they want. It's a platform. It's like a road. You can decide to speed or not speed, right? Yeah. Um, you can decide to drink drive or not drink drive. You can use it responsibly or irresponsibly. But what we do then is we set up, we provide the infrastructure and then we set the rules around it, right? This is how fast you have to drive here. You give way to the right. Um, you can turn left on a red signal. Whatever the rules are that we agree, right? They're the rules. And a smart city, as a city, because I'll, I'll wrap this up for you because I realise that we've had a hiccup. A smart city is a city that's saying, look, we have this extraordinary technology. We have extraordinary data handling. We have extraordinary ability to interconnect. It's giving people extraordinary opportunities to do things never before imagined. But it's also dangerous, like any new technology, and it can be misused, and it can be used in ways we're not comfortable. So what we need to be doing is thinking about this with a legal an administrative framework that everyone is comfortable with and can have an assurity with. So, yes, you can monitor your kids, but no, paedophiles can't get in there, right? That sort of business. Yes, we can monitor my aged mother to see that she's okay and she and I can talk and I can check on her, even though she's in Auckland and I'm in central Otago. But um, she's protected by the system. That's what you're saying. Yeah, correct. We, we, what worries me about the smart city discussion is people when people only talk about the technology and not what they're doing with it, right? Because yeah. then you don't, then you lose that ethical framework. Lots of people are putting smart devices out in the field. One of the funniest examples is a temperature thermometer in a casino in the United States where someone hacked all the high roller data because they connected it to their server, right? And it had no data protection. So we've just got to set the right rules around how we... That is amazing. So yeah. someone goes into a casino and says, I'll give you this temperature monitoring thing so it can run your AC better. Well, it goes in. It went in a tropical fish tank. It was monitoring the water temperature. No. No, I'm serious. So these are the things where we need to be sort of clear about what what we accept morally as citizens, what benefits we want, what risks we see, and then, you know, trust but verify is what I would say, typically, <laughs> okay. and have an ongoing process of, of, of self-analysis and review over all of that. If people listening want to find 
a couple of things. First, how to learn more about what you're about on Smart Cities. How do they do that? Uh, best would be website, which is www.smartcitiescouncil.com. Mm-hmm. Okay. And if they want to protect themselves, be weary of these risks, they have concerns, concerns about kids, concerned about age parents and technology. I was constantly worried about my poor mother um, mm. towards the end. I mean, every 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 son and daughter is. What's their best way of having them or helping them with this technology, which can be such a boon and then such a risk? It's an interesting one. We're about to – so most of our activity are directed through what we call task forces, which are designed to have tangible, um, implementable outcomes, right? So one of well, – two upcoming task forces, one is about remote and Indigenous communities where there's mm-hmm. a huge social and digital equity divide, and the other one is digital equity for the ageing community. So we're in 2024 looking to – release a position paper and a series of actionable outcomes around how to enable digital equity for our ageing community. It was it was an interesting but frustrating point during COVID. After people were isolated and people could go back to sports events, for example, that the number of elderly people attending fell dramatically because it was all paperless entry now. It was all QR codes on phones and... Um, it was zero touch entry to us to go and see their football team that they'd followed forever, right? Or their cricket team. So aged people who didn't have mobile phones couldn't do that. You know, if you needed to show your MyGov ID, for example, to show that you're vaccinated, it only comes in an app. How do you do that? You know, so there's a whole series of issues to be raised that need better attention that we've we've identified and are just starting to sift through as an organization and want to make part of public engagement in 2024. My mother's elderly friend um, said to us they were rolling out fibre and it was a huge kerfuffle for the elderly Mm. people to be shifted onto fibre. And she said to me, why can't they just wait till all the old people die and then do it? Well, they're trying to kill them. That's why. <laughs> they're and, trying, to, uh, trying to drive them to the edge of the cliff. That's well, what it Corey, is. Well, uh, Corey, you're a very busy guy with seven children and you're a very busy guy with what you do. And so I appreciate you sharing this time for us, particularly because we had a hiccup in time zones and I put you to some, some uh, awkwardness. So I will let you go there. But I have to say, I appreciate you. I still struggle to get my head around quite what it all is. And um, if you ever, I'll talk to Robin, and if we ever have an opportunity to get further explanation and it works for you, we've got a large number of listeners who are interested, uh, please, um, we'll be back. But I appreciate your time today. Thank you for that. No, no, I appreciate you reaching out and happy to talk more and I mean, the value of these sorts of um, conversations is if we do over time get to what is the nub, there's no communicating isn't standing on a hill and yelling out. It's when you've said something Mm -hmm. that makes sense and people have heard it and you know that they understood it. So we're not here to be right. We're here to communicate and and we're here to to help. So appreciate your time as well. 
There's Corey Gray from the Smart Cities Council, worldwide organization. He heats it up and he does it voluntarily, even underwrites its operation. And he's doing that so we, the people, can take better, make better use of data in a way. And while I struggled at the start to get it, I think there towards the end I was starting to get glimly aware, but this is my dimness. But we're very lucky to have Corey along. So thank you. This is Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Tuesdays and Thursdays from 10 a.m.